Hello. Welcome again. And thank you so much for joining me. This is uh, the second lecture in my series on Terry Eagleton's book, Literary Theory and Introduction. And just by way of introduction, just keep in mind that these lectures are just supposed to supplement your reading. My hope is that you're either reading along with these lectures or at least use these lectures as a jump off point to actually go and read the chapters more closely. So today uh, we'll be talking about his second chapter and the second chapter is entitled The Rise of English, uh, which basically is Eagleton's explanation of how English rises, first of all, in the British Academy as a viable uh, discipline and subject of study. But in the process, then he also touches upon how English was viewed, not just by people, um, you know, outside of the academia, but how do the academics themselves present or represent English as a viable discipline and in the process of doing so, how do they make it so? And as I had touched upon in my first lecture, you know, Eagleton is a materialist. He is a Marxist scholar. So he always places the rise of new paradigms and rise of new ideas within the material domain. So the difference between being an idealist and a materialist is that for most uh, ideologues or idealists, when they trace a history of any anything or any concept, they would place it within the rise of new ideas. But if you're a Marxist and a materialist, you would always connect it to a changing mode of production or anything that shifts in the material history. And that is what causes a shift or a change in a thought process or a practice. So Eagleton starts the chapter by, you know, reminding us that our views of literature and what we think of it, which I had touched upon in my first lecture as well, are formed around the views that were formed during the Romantic period, during the 19th century. And what was happening at that time was it was rise of early capital in England uh, and cities were literally becoming industrial cities. Nature was being destroyed, right? Rivers were being polluted because there was no regulation or anything. And in a way, the life as one could think of was bleak. It was also, there was a certain degree of pseudo-scientificity involved in the local discourse. And so there was a lot of discord. There were a lot of revolutions happening too. So it's during the Romantic period, the era that we associate with romantic poets, you know, people like Shelley, Byron, Keats, uh, Coleridge, uh, Wordsworth. It's during that time that what we now understand as literature is kind of fixed and articulated. And that is literature involving imagination, that literariness or, or poetry is poetry because it's imaginative. And there is this emphasis on imagination, so much of an emphasis that uh, quite a few romantics were believed and actually articulated that in their writing was that since life outside uh, had become 
unsustainable, cruel, right, too uh, materialistic, the only place in which one could get some solace or, or, or a complete sense of self was in imagination. And poetry for them was that realm where you could read a poem and feel, you know, detached from the everyday exigencies of life. And that's where this idea of literature as imaginative and role of imagination in literary studies kind of takes hold. So by and large, I mean, if you have read any Keats or especially, let's say, Shelley, uh, you already know that in early romantic poems, there is this movement, right? There is this rising movement. The poet usually starts from the real material world, but then enters this imaginative realm, right? I mean, if you have, if you read uh, Coleridge's Kobla Khan, I mean, nothing in that, you know, is, uh, has a corresponding thing in nature or in the human world, but we love that poem because it creates a world within itself. And that is the poet telling us that if you take this journey with me and get into this poem, you know, uh, we still don't know what does he mean by, you know, he on honeydew and milk has been you know, the last figure in the poem. Or similarly, Keats says, Ode to a Gracian Urn, if you look at the poem itself, I mean, the silver marbles had just arrived at the British Museum, right, plundered from Greece, I think. And uh, the poem starts with the narrator of the poem looking at this vase, right? This urn, which has etched relief on it, which has figurines on it. And then from there, it goes into a realm of its own. It goes into a realm of imagination, which has no corresponding referent in the world. So that's what, you know, kind of defines for us what, literature being imaginative means and part of it Eagleton gives us material reasons for it that the life outside was kind of unsustainable it had become cruel and it was the rise of capital and there was a lot of pollution and everything else so maybe if we can't establish a causality maybe it's at least an impetus for poets and artists to create this world and, and bring imagination to that level, right? And so in that sense, it also kind of defies most of the times, which even materialists have these reflectionist ideas, right? Where we believe that uh, an author's consciousness, a poet's consciousness somehow automatically reflects the world in which they live. We can see here that the romantics are actually intentionally producing works that are contrary to the world in sight. But it also creates as Eagleton suggests, a certain kind of politics. It creates a kind of belief that there is no need to change the world. All you can do is read some good books and read some good poetry. So there is a certain degree of uh, detachment from the world and from commitment to it, which is part of... And if you think of our own view of literature, so many times we try to convince ourselves that literature ought to be apolitical and we don't read it to change the world. We just read it to find wisdom and, you know, great ideas and something like that, which may have no practical value. These ideas come from the Romantic period, according to Eagleton. And it's also around this time that, the, um, you know, the, the aesthetics 
of poetry or philosophy of aesthetics is also developed and this comes from philosophy but the idea is that you can have while reading a poem or maybe a short prose piece if you can have an aesthetic experience because the poem contains it in itself something some ideas some thoughts that can move you right in opposition to having an experience in the real world so the idea is if you turn to poetry if you turn to good literature it can give you some kind of an aesthetic experience because of the way the poem is constructed because of the imagination involved in it but that further leads to um this idea of the you know the rise of the symbol right um uh, most uh, people who uh, subscribe to the aesthetical way of looking at art also think that art in itself is complete a work of art is an organic whole these ideas are developing and there's a, a heavy reliance on symbols right and it is believed that a symbol within a poem it may not we may not be able to like literally take it apart but it can contain concretize right crystallize large ideas and you can see some of the romantic poems actually go and create their own symbols right now for example early yeats right he becomes a modernist but starts as a romantic i mean look at all the symbology that he creates with creates which is particular to his poetry in order to understand his poetry we need to know those symbols but once we learn what he means by them then they make sense within the poem like they create a world so the, so the whole concept of the 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 gyre or gyre i think you know that every 2000 years history moves like this funnel and so in order to understand that poetry we need to understand that symbol and that leads to even now our students and some of us teachers you know actually looking at symbols in texts and trying to not if decipher them trying to point to each other what their significance is that also was a product of the aesthetic movement the movement in poetry and in writing post romanticism where the work of art itself becomes an artifact that we are supposed to study and these things are important to know because when we move into the later phases in this chapter these assumptions are very much at play But another important thing that Eagleton discusses in the beginning of the chapter is 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 to answer the question why this sudden emphasis on role of literature right not just in terms of aesthetic appreciation of it but its continuous mobilization within the culture itself we already know that this is a culture where capital is rising there are huge disruptions right there is a middle class that has risen they are wealthy right but in the views of a lot of poets and scholars especially Matthew Arnold who's a really essential figure in this entire discussion uh, these people are you know philistines they have no manners they have no culture right uh, they're greedy and so arnold's view of the society is that we as people most of the times look at our 
betters, people above us in the class structure, to formulate our own selves, right? Now, for some time, religion did that, right? Religion as a moral force, as a code of conduct, was supposed to be kind of give these guiding principles to people whether they were educated or not if you were educated of course you could read the bible but if you were not educated you would go to the church and the clergy and the pastors would give you some kind of moral education some kind of mooring the idea was you know deep down in arnold's view the point wasn't just how to make people better the point was that the society is changing right and there is a huge mass of people moving into the cities because of rise of capitalism and these people are poor they work you know terrible jobs but churches can no longer offer them the kind of guidance that is needed the kind of moral training that is needed so instead of religion which by that time because of the rise of science because of the rise of capital had lost its force in the english society literature was supposed to replace that and how okay first of all literary education being aware of art and literature was considered important for the middle class now if they could be cultured and become civilized then the idea was that they could become better moral examples and better moral teachers for those below them the working people because the hypothesis is that the working class people the proletariat models itself on the people above them and so hence as the religion loses its power to shape human identities to shape human collectivities right literature and art is supposed to take its place and Matthew Arnold is the one who in his book Culture and Anarchy argues for it and a lot of people pick up on it and that is when teaching english literature kind of becomes a plausible idea that okay if we are going to teach englishmen how to be good englishmen the best way to do that is to teach them great works of english literature great poets of english literature and uh, do keep in mind that eagleton points out that that is why english as a subject of study was not first introduced at cambridge and oxford they were actually introduced in the mechanics colleges in what we would call vocational colleges which automatically proves the point that the purpose of english as a subject of study was to provide a tool to the state through the university system to through the tech schools to um socialize these people who had moved into the cities to make them into englishmen right proper englishmen so that they know their place in society and the mode of doing that was through didactics through teaching english values as represented in english poetry in english novels and that is the early introduction of english as a subject of study now keep in mind also that eagleton mentions in a couple of sentences that this corresponds with the rise of english imperialism so english doesn't just rise in a vacuum it rises because there is a need for english studies 
nationalistic need maybe but then it is also exported into the world because that is also the time when England is rising as an imperial power and those of you who have gone through colonial educational systems or live in post colonial nation states know what i'm talking about right the way english is treated in india pakistan bangladesh like people even evaluate your accent right and uh, i i have heard people you know in pakistan trying to emulate the the royal british accent i mean that's how deep it's ingrained in in our consciousnesses and english studies then is used in most of the british colonies to inculcate in that macaulay's famous words to create the kind of subjectivities that would be receptive to english power right um and even deep down to a point if you go by ngugi tiangos that the curriculum the english curriculum restructures aesthetics of the people i mean think of the people living in india and africa reading daffodils never having seen a daffodil but internalizing that somehow daffodil is this unique flower right um or people even just thinking about shakespeare the way they do right despite the fact that they might have had their own great authors Shakespeare to them becomes this great playwright because it's part of the curriculum that is being taught so suddenly by the rise of english english isn't just a subject that is used within the um the united kingdom now what we call it united kingdom itself to create certain complacent subjectivities right it is also employed deeply carefully and with policy behind it in the colonies right so while english is being established in the british universities of course uh, english has to compete with the classics now oxbridge oxford cambridge and all the other major universities had always had uh, classics departments right they taught greek classics you know or of um, philosophy of literature roman classics right and uh, you know the classics departments were not very receptive to their this junior nationalistic cousin english so there was a lot of friction because the classics didn't want english to be a part of that english could not be part of the classics department so people who were trying to promote english as a viable subject of study as a discipline had to fight you know the classics and their claim to supremacy their claim to giving people some kind of cultured education and that's where then the work of early uh, proponents or exponents of english studies in at cambridge becomes crucial so people like fr lewis qd lewis who was married to fr lewis ia richards these are the first you can say the generals of english studies right all of them teaching at oxford all of them meeting together all of them coming from the bourgeois middle class none of them had participated in the first world war but they believe that english literary studies is a viable and respectable field and discipline of study and they get to work right they launch a journal which is called scrutiny 
Scrutiny was the first academic journal that actually doesn't just fight for claiming English as a viable literary study, but also articulates how literature must be studied. So the things like practical criticism or close reading of the text, that is what we get from scrutiny. These people were writing constantly. They were producing knowledge, arguing for not just the viability of literary studies, but also arguing that studying literature, studying English literature is a respectable, right? And 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 an absolutely essential part of education. Now, what is enabling them in the process also is, you know, uh, the, the death of philology, as I uh, mentioned, because, you know, post First World War, British has, Britain had defeated Germany with its allies, right? Most of the curriculum of philology, which was huge in, in all universities, was, was Germanic. And of course, why would they want to teach something, you know, that Germans came up with so slowly, you know, in, and, and there is rise of English nationalism, right? And so the argument kind of becomes really strong that, okay, uh, we can't teach philology anymore. It has a lot of affinity with the German culture, German history, but we need to create a sense of English national identity and what better than to teach English literature in our universities. So that is how then English kind of becomes um, an established discipline. And uh, then, you know, its further development into a discipline would not be complete according to T.S. Eliot uh, by the role that, uh, according to, yeah, of course, um, Eagleton, by the role played by T.S. Eliot. Now, Eliot was an American transplant, but kind of out English is the English, right? And he enters the British scene and then explodes. He starts writing, right? Now, Eliot is deeply conservative in his views of art. So, um, you know, he single-handedly recuperates the cavalier poets, right? People uh, or the metaphysical poets like John Donne and Andrew Marwell and all these other people who were otherwise considered not great poets because he plots their poetry within a larger imagination of tradition. So his litmus test for good poetry is that it must be somehow either in concert or in sync with the great tradition or you know, it must elevate that. So, hence, he goes and recovers these metaphysical poets because he can point to an idealized time in history, which was pre-British Revolution, of course, where there was a head of the state, there was a monarch, there was like a social order, and these poets, hence, can give us, give the readers this imaginated, imaginative ideal. And hence, since their work comes out of that tradition, they are somehow better poets, right? And in the process of doing that, Eliot then, you know, when he starts writing his own poetry, he's the one who pushes poetry to modernism, but also literary studies to modernism. And suddenly we realize that literature has now become something that may not necessarily represent the world outside doesn't need to represent the world outside, but 
can offer an alternative world within the pages of a book and that alternative the kind of world that the poet wants that the people want is only possible within a work of art itself so the work of art as we enter modernism becomes less representative of the world in which we are but more geared towards representing itself as an answer to the world's problems right and offering an organic whole as a work of art itself as a text as a poem itself in opposition to the fractured world outside and that is Eliot's move into modernity right and that also i mean even before eliot through scrutiny and through the uh, levis and others you know they okay so they are trying to prove that english is a worthy discipline of study in order to do that they have to come up with a mode of reading a mode of dealing with literary text that is not just some kind of dilettante practice which everyone can do but that needs education that needs training that has its own vocabularies its own scientific so called method of reading the poems right and that is where the idea of practical criticism and close reading uh, um is introduced right now close reading um we still perform it but the idea behind it was that we don't need the context we don't need the historical account it's the word on the page right that are crucial that are important and a critic should carefully read the words on the page read the symbols on a page <clears throat> and hence perform a professional reading right a reading that only someone trained can perform and that's the rise of <clears throat> excuse me highly um you know uh, articulated rules of engagement with the text that can claim a certain degree of specialization um now in the second part of the chapter then eliot moves to the rise of american new criticism right in the 1920s again and of course the most important figure in that is john crow ransom i mean i think eagleton doesn't quote him but there is a famous essay that john crow ransom writes and my students always read it for my literary theory classes and it's called criticism incorporated criticism inc so ransom and uh, people like clint brooks and others they were part of this group in nashville tennessee at vanderbilt university which was called the fugitives these people were politically aligned with um, what you would call uh, the southern agrarian movement so their idea of america and i'll talk about it a little more as an aside but here in that essay ransom argues that literature professors must become people who articulate how literature ought to be talked about how it ought to be written about philosophers cannot do it because according to him philosophers only see the big picture the historians cannot do it because historians focus too much on the context itself it's only the literature professors who have the capacity and the training to read closely the words on the page 
right? And uh, he also argues that the authors themselves cannot explain their work because their approach to explaining is intuitive. They they can't really explain the mechanics of how they came up with it. So he in that essay, criticism incorporated. What he says is that the critics must become incorporated, right? They must develop a body of knowledge that articulates how texts ought to be read, how they ought to be written about. And that is the rise of American new criticism, which stays in force, you know, till the 80s, still is in force at so many um, institutions, right? And in one of, towards the end of his essay, he talks about, okay, if you want to read a poem, you can work with a paraphrase and extrapolate from that. And then Cleat Brooks, Brooks, you know, writes, even though they are friends, writes a response to it, which is called, uh, which is entitled Heresy of the Paraphrase. And he says, absolutely not. A poem must not be paraphrased because if you paraphrase a poem and then write about it, you're creating a new object of study. And so the idea is to read the poem carefully, recursively from one verse to the other. And that is the only way you can read poetry. In both these cases, you are supposed to stay on the text. The only history that you can invoke is probably the history of earlier readings of the poem, but no historical context is necessary because what you're dealing with is the aesthetic object, which is an organic whole. And your job as a specialist is to read it. So they develop also vocabularies. What is attention in the poem? How is it resolved? What are the ambiguities in the poem? How are they clarified? But you stay on the poem. And it's uh, Wimseth and Bradsley who further develop on this idea of why not to look elsewhere. And they are the ones who articulate the two fallacies, right? The intentional fallacy and... Um, the other effective fallacy. Okay, so the intentional fallacy is trying to read the author's intention in the poem, right? But also trying to go find out what the author's intention was through a biographical research. And their point is that a critic must not worry about what the author's intention outside the poem was because the authorial intention is already within the poem. Right? If the author had intended something, that intention is within the poem itself. The poem contains that. And so we don't need to go outside the poem to find out the authorial intention. And the effective fallacy is, is the, bracketing the other end of the reception of poem, which is the uh, personality of the critic his or herself. Because what they are trying to say is that criticism must be objective. So what they are saying is that the critic must not bring his, how the poem impacts him or her. They should not be, oh, this is how this poem makes me feel. That is irrelevant to the reading of the poem. And, and so that is effective fallacy. Uh, the poet should avoid incorporating that in an act of reading. So these are the two um, things that Wimsett and Bradsley want us to completely keep in mind the two fallacies, right? So as uh, you can see, we started with how literature rises in Romanticism. There is an emphasis on creativity, right? There is an emphasis on going into the text because the world outside is kind of 
uh, unstable, unsustainable, maybe not as people had imagined it. And poets then seek that wholeness, that organic unity within the work of art itself, within the poem itself. If, if you've read any romantic poems, you can see that they are creating worlds within worlds, right? And then as we move into modernism via Eliot and others, increasingly, as English departments are being set up, they are also trying to develop a scientific mode, a specialized mode of reading literature. Um, of course, there are there is a necessity for this also materially if you are claiming that you are a discipline unto yourself and you need funding, you need a department, then you have to convince the others that you're not doing what philosophers do, you're not doing what the historians or political scientists do, that what you, you do is only what the English scholars and critics can do. And so that imperative implied uh, uh, is already there and maybe they are working under that imperative too. I usually suggest that that could have been one of the reasons but we have reached a point in new criticism where the text itself is supreme, right? And where the role of the critic is to leave his or her own prejudices and preferences outside the text and to not involve any biographical information of the author, any context outside the poem, because that is already contained in the poem, and perform the reading of a poem as to the words on the page. Maybe you'll read symbols. So, I mean, that's why Eagleton makes fun of it, because he says that, you know, if you read the well-wrought urn, you can't tell this poem is from the Greek era or from 18th century or 19th century because you can pretty much read every poem out of context in the same way because you're just looking at you know what the poem does within the poem itself the other limitation of new criticism is that it's very hard to sustain it over a long prose text i mean how do you read war and peace with that i mean you can't really perform a prose reading of all the 1000 pages of the novel so uh, another peculiarity of new criticism or its weakness that eagleton mentions is that it could really only apply to poems and that to only lyrical poems it would have would be hard to sustain a reading of long narrative poems and that's what he mentions in the chapter too now i'm going to go like slightly beyond the chapter especially in explaining the rise of new criticism and it's uh, the material causes of it and it's beautifully explained and i highly recommend it in a book by David Noble, right, who's a historian, but his book called Death of a Nation, and it's about the death of American exceptionalism, and in which he's talking about the fugitives and the Southern agrarian movement, right? These people who, who's, and, and that their response to actual things unfolding in the world was to the material conditions that were changing in the South, but also that they were responding to what they had imagined, they had internalized what America ought to be, right? So these people have this pastoral idea of America. To them, America was supposed to be this pastoral landscape where, you know, the husbandmen, farmers, small farm holders were supposed to be free. Uh, think of the Crevecore and the letters of an American farmer. And that was their idea of America. 
but you know post war america post world war america is suddenly becoming deeply capitalistic right the economy is becoming capitalistic the larger corporations are moving uh, in the south is losing its uh, culturally agrarian view and it's becoming industrialized so these people intentionally then the fugitives decide that america of their imaginations this pastoral nation of husbandmen farmers right is no longer sustainable is being destroyed and that the only way they can retain it or they can save it or protect it is from the ivory tower and within the literary text so the literary text become not an escape but this expression of an america that was being lost and if you look at that explanation of the rise of new criticism then you realize that i mean it emerges out of that crisis of faith in america as it is changing and and it is then creating an aesthetic a critical movement that looks for that uniqueness that wholeness right that unfractured logical um thing in the works of art in literary texts and i thought that was an interesting thing that david noble writes and i i usually talk about it in my class so you know overall um i think i've been going for too long and i don't know if there are any questions there are no questions but um so let's sum up in this chapter eagleton starts with uh, by asserting that our own ideas about what constitutes the literary were originally or basically formed during the romantic period during the 19th century which coincides with the rise of early capital and the poets and others who were maybe unhappy with the way the world was changing the way the um, britain was changing um, move into the work of art the poetry itself and then within the poetry they emphasize creating imaginative worlds which have nothing to do with the world outside but which can maybe offer the reader or the poet some kind of solace so imagination is huge then as we move through the disciplinary aspects of english studies which is connected to english nationalism or moral training of the masses uh, english gets established in the universities post first world war it eventually wins against the classics and then it is increasingly offered as a moralized uh, as a moral force as something that can train people to become better british citizens and think of it we still make this argument that literary studies by itself can make people better and there is a really beautiful line in the book uh, in this chapter because this claim that reading by itself can make us better is such a ludicrous claim because um, you know um, eagleton writes this that when the when the allied forces um, capture one of the death camps during the holocaust they realized that the camp commandant you know who had massacred thousands of people was a great fan of goethe had full collection of his works but reading all those literary texts didn't make them think twice before killing thousands of people thousands of jewish prisoners so this the but that idea that literature can be taught 
and that it can somehow make people better citizens, better British people, is the one that is crucial to establish English studies in British universities. But, you know, Eagleton also uh, acknowledges that it did do one thing, establishment of English as a, uh, as a discipline, as a field of uh, discipline of study in the universities, broke that earlier hold on being cultured, right? Previously, to be considered cultured or to be considered educated was connected to your breeding. So only the nobility, only people from the uppermost classes could claim how to appreciate art, how to appreciate good literature, right? Because you were bred into it. But by introducing literary studies as a discipline, by developing vocabularies to teach it, but also to write about it, what the Levisites actually accomplish is they make it possible for anyone to take a degree and then claim a certain degree of prestige associated with it. Claim that they could read literature like a cultured person too. So so that is the positive thing that comes out of it is that lit- literary studies then can make us into people who can appreciate fine poetry, who can appreciate fine art, and that gives the middle class a way into claiming that kind of cultured selves, right? And maybe so that falls into the mission of Matthew Arnold, maybe the middle classes then by acquiring this language and these sensitivities can become a model for the proletariat, right? And so these are some of the things that Eagleton discusses in the chapter, right? Uh, I have probably not covered all of them, uh, but, uh, you know, you know, um, my hope is that this brief lecture uh, has given you some basic ideas about the chapter itself and about uh, the major concerns in the chapters that uh, chapter that Eagleton talks about and that you you can now go and read the whole chapter more carefully. Uh, I'm really grateful to you for having joined me. And if you have any questions, you can post it on my website. You can send them to postcolonial.net. Uh, the, in the description of this video on YouTube, there is also a link to my first lecture on this topic. And then on my website, I will soon announce the next lecture, which would be on the chapter three. And I hope that that would also be useful to you. So thank you so much and you all go ahead and have a wonderful weekend.